Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. My name is Dave Hanratty and there will be no encore for the 298th time, I believe. Craig Fitzpatrick is with me in a virtual sense yet again. Hello. Yeah. Hello. It's coming up to that 300. It is. It's yeah. scary, isn't it? It is, yeah. Hopefully we can do something special for it, uh, which will obviously be tricky, but we'll, we'll try. Negotiations are ongoing. We're going to try and maybe mark it in a special way, but we'll see what we can do. Um, got, got some nice feedback on the Bond episode last week, Craig. Um, not only do people make playlists of their own, but of course, uh, I got a nice Patreon DM off somebody who said that like, uh, you and I, I, I forgot what the exact message was, but the, the sentiment was that we have great chemistry sometimes. And I think that is oh, really? true. <laughs> After 10 years, we're finally clicking. <laughs> Maybe we should keep this thing Maybe up. It helps that we're yeah, not in the same room together. <laughs> but I was making the point that I miss being in the same room. But there are moments where it I does do kind too. of feel like it filters through. Uh, much like right now, I think. And it is, of course, patreon.com slash noencore, where you can send us messages if you, <laughs> I was about to say, just pay us some money to send us some messages. That's terrible. <laughs> patreon.com slash slash no encore if you'd like to help support this independent show uh you will get fans details as well please dave because i'm working up to that craig that's later in the show it's it's for post watershed stuff um patreon.com slash no encore you get bonus episodes you get playlists and obviously the wonderful uh, feeling of supporting the show so if you can help us out that'll be unreal as a matter of fact uh, the reason i'm plugging it so hard now is because craig uh put out this week a playlist that he made kid cuddy it's kind of a primer listening guide it has a narrative and uh, it seems it's been a really nice response to that playlist. But also on top of that, Craig, you wrote an absolutely beautiful essay. Uh, I said oh, thank to you, you very much. I said, it's would you mind throwing in? <laughs> but I said, yeah, would you mind throwing in like like two or three paragraphs on it? And then when I saw it had gone out, um, and I should say by the way, there was a there, there was a slight link 
issue, but that's yeah, been fixed the in the back end now. An old episode or, but yeah. the first link in it is, in fact, the playlist. So it's it's there. And people have found it, so it's fine. But um, I, I had a read of it there yesterday for the first time properly because it is quite long. And man, it brought a tear to my eye. It was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you very much. You must have expected that kind of like, I know you're just like, can you throw a couple of paragraphs together? And no, I knew what I was usually doing. Usually once, I, yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was, you know, after a couple of days of like being back in the office, finally, I got home kind of late. I was like running on fumes and I was just like stuck the playlist on and started typing about Kid Cudi, man. You also, um, you included Calvin and Hobbes referencing and a beautiful Calvin and Hobbes image to close yeah. it off. And I... I love spoilers. Calvin by the Hobbs. way, sorry for Calvin and Hobbes. That was the final ever Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> That's one of um, the reasons why it hit strip. me so hard. Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip, is something I've, I've adored since I was a kid. As a matter of fact, my laptop right now in front of me is perched atop my hardback Calvin and Hobbes collection thing, Beautiful. which I which I love. Um, yeah, I don't want to derail the start of the show too much. We have a lot to talk about music wise, but I, I must ask you. You did mention back in the office. How's that all that going? Is it all okay? Yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good to see some old faces in the in the flesh, you know, meet new people. Um, I've realized I lie a lot in a really benign way, but just weeks and weeks of being like, it'd be good to get back to some more normality, you know, and touch face with the office. And I'm like, get me by out the of time here. I was in my way, like on my way in on Tuesday, I was like, what? This is not like I would happily do remote for the rest of my life. If you could teleport me to the office, fine. But yeah. by day two, the commute, yeah, Irish Rail, half an hour delay. I got up at seven a.m. to get. I was at my desk at half nine. <laughs> I'm just like, but I will say today, um, I'd, I'd done my two days. Today I was back working from home. Um, you can hear me right now in the slightly echoey converted garage, <laughs> and it was glorious this morning. It was glorious. I woke up at seven, rolled over, <laughs> and then like. Half eight, man. I felt like the bloody Sultan of Brunei. I just floated down to the converted garage <laughs> and I was like, this is living. I've not appreciated this for 18 months and now I do. So, you know, through the hardship. Yeah. And speaking of, if, if Craig's voice sounds a little bit boomier than usual, it's because there are toxic paint fumes in the room he usually records in and we don't want him to pass out. So <laughs> put up with some echo if you can. I did, I did have a great summer once when I was a teenager painting where... um. I accidentally oh, too, like, years ago, hotboxed yeah. myself and didn't realize <laughs> I was high as a guy for about a week and it was great, but nice. I'm no longer 18, Dave. No, that's true. Not 19 forever either. Um, so listen, on this episode, time to talk about music. We have uh, an album review. We didn't think that we would have an album review, but we do. And it's an album that's actually out right as this podcast is out. It's James Blake's new one. So I'm sure that'll cheer us up. Or is that just dismissive of me? Probably. Uh, nonetheless, um, Craig has chosen top five songs about haters... Go on, Craig, explain. Uh, yeah, so it was a simple case of um, listening to James Blake's album, Friends That Break Your Heart. And the title track is like, you know, in the end, it was friends who broke my heart. And that's the sentiment. It's um, songs about haters that can mean, you know, former friends, turncoats, critics, um, general haters, blackguards, um, wazooks, general songs of not necessarily revenge, but... Um, Settling scores, bit of bile, bit of acerbic kind of, you know, anthemic stuff. And it's been an interesting one because, of course, you've got an entire genre, that genre being hip hop, that 
Now, most of the songs are aimed at haters in one way or another. So you could dip into that. I kind of steered clear of that to a large extent. I'm imagining your list will be probably better than mine because I feel like some of the genres you have held near and dear and close to your heart for many, many years really kind of come into their own when it comes to like angsty, settling scores, just fuck the world (laughs) anthems. So I'm expecting you to really thrive in this zone. Uh, it's definitely the best backhanded compliment I've gotten this week. Thank you for that. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking sure. about the music. That you of course. Um, I will say ahead of uh, like as a quick teaser, I will say that there was a point where I looked at my list and I was like, yeah, every song here is emo and I have to address this slightly. So I, I had to bump a few, but we'll get to it later on in the show. For now, Adam, let's do it to it before it does it to us. You heard about the good news? It is indeed time for the music news. And as a matter of fact, um, I guess Craig said earlier on that he um, is something of a benign liar. I guess I'm going to have to throw myself into that category as well, because I did say quite vehemently, I think I did say we would no longer be uh, entertaining a certain section of the news section. Mm. But unfortunately, um, the gods are against us, Craig. And so once again, in the middle distance, I hear a certain sound. Glad it's back. Yeah, it feels kind of comforting at this stage in a weird way. Melvin Ben, head of Festival Republic, back in the news because Electric Picnic is once again back in the news. And here, live from Stradbally, is Craig Fitzpatrick to tell us more. Yeah, he's he's done it again. The promoters have received an insurance payout. Congratulations, no Dave, on calling oh, it. I can't believe it happened. Now, it's from the 2020 event, um, Electric Picnic, being cancelled due to COVID. And um, yeah, most of the story is actually, it's kind of Dennis Desmond heavy, managing director of MCD. We don't have a Dennis Desmond dingling. I feel like I Maybe that if would he be, does a bit more. I feel like know. that would be very, uh, we're putting ourselves in a very litigious quadrangle that we don't need to do. Possibly. Maybe we keep it moving. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He confirmed last Friday that, uh, yeah, last year's event was covered by a global Live Nation insurance policy. Um, he said, yep, we had cover. We had no issues getting payments. Very straight to the point there. <laughs> <laughs> Rejoicing. But, yeah, it would seem that actually the cancelled event for this year was not covered. Uh, Mr. Desmond said that as insurers, Mr. as of Desmond. January of last year, decided <laughs> that they wouldn't give pandemic cover. So actually, do you know what? I mean, we were talking a big talk about Melvin Ben being so... Bullish. Bullish, outspoken about EP 2021 going ahead because he was covering his basis and maybe there was, you know, a certain amount of that, but... I'm thinking now they didn't, you know, they didn't really have much of a hope of getting covered. They probably knew that. Is there any small, small chance that Melvin Ben is just really passionate about live music, Dave? Has a has big festival gotten to you this week, Craig? Has it? Sounds like it to me. Um, sad to see a man sell out his principles benign like lies, this one. Dave, benign lies. <laughs> I, I don't want to speculate too much on the inner workings of the man's brain, but I'm certain that there's obviously, you wouldn't be a, a festival uh promoter 
I was, I was going to say like festival of terror. That's not a word. Um, unless you had some interest Isn't in the it? live music scene, I'm sure that's all above board. But look, it's all coming back though. Glastonbury announced Billie Eilish this week is like uh, their youngest ever solo headliner for the festival next year. So I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure they'll be okay. And who knows, Craig? Maybe we'll end up back there someday. But in the meantime, we're going to stay here and we're going to give out about um, a story. Well, not really, it's not really a story, but it's a, a happening that took place this week. I'm sure a lot of people on Twitter saw this. Uh, all of the hipsters united in their kind of uh, befuddlement, I would say. Yeah. It's time to talk about Pitchfork, who have done a very Pitchfork thing this week. They've rescored a bunch of old reviews, um, which appears to be apropos of nothing. My, my genuine feeling it's is that they were feature, just... Yeah. Yeah, I, I, they must have just been sitting around being like, well, nothing's happening. What do we do? So they did this thing called a Pitchfork Rescored. Um, there's like a big fucking intro and I'll give you the end of it. They're basically making the point that, you know, opinions change. Um, so they say what follows are 19 ideas about rescoring a handful of album reviews. These adjustments are born out of conversations we have all the time here on staff, much like the conversations well, you our dear opinionated reader have as well. They're hypothetical, which is to say, and this is in bold, and I know Craig's going to single this bit out, not canon, but rather rather a fun little diversion, a conversation starter brought to you by the individual grievances of the Pitchfork staff, from slight adjustments to major reconsiderations to grave errors in judgment. Enjoy a bit of our revisionist history. So... Like I say, what this is, is they've taken albums, mostly high profile ones, and, you know, given them a fresh coat of paint and uh, moved around their scores, their decimal based scores accordingly. I've selected a few highlights here. Mm. Um, Let's start off with Daft Punk are in here twice, Craig, Um, and Mm. I'll explain as follows. So Discovery has gone from initially being rated 6.4 out of 10 to a perfect 10, which they rarely give out. Perfect album. Yeah. This is this is one that could have just stood alone because, as you say, there's such a kind of like mythology around that perfect ten that just to kind of like throw it in there amongst like eighteen other ideas or concepts, conversations. It's a big one now. Obviously, yeah, Discovery was released way back when, so I'm guessing that score was contemporaneous, uh, six point four, and certainly it's a whole different online publication to what it was back then. So, to a certain extent, I understand Pitchfork relooking at their old stances and some of there's yeah some of their takes back in the day were juvenile and contrarian for the sake of it yeah, and contrarian yeah. for the sake of it in the extreme and i can totally understand why um this whole new batch of people want to distance themselves from that so that that kind of makes sense to me it's not a perfect 10 though is it i mean no it is not uh, and i threw it on <laughs> I, I, I threw it on off the back of this okay. and i was like this is a good album and it's got some some great stuff on it but like a perfect 10 it, it absolutely isn't I, like 6.4 it isn't either an 8 would have been fine with me but the other one they got this one kind of right uh random access memories my beloved random access memories has gone down two points from 8.8 to 6.8 uh, and i'm going to read uh, the little kind of write-up here by philip sherborne who says mark richardson's review acknowledged the hype while attempting to look beyond it my guess is that people will be listening to random access memories a decade hence just like we're still doing to discovery now he said Eight years later, I'm not so sure about that. It's not that people aren't listening to it. The album has racked up nearly 1.5 billion plays on Spotify alone. Are we sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, his name is Philip Sherburn, so who knows? Uh, Ram has some jams. Nice. But it doesn't feel pivotal in the same way that Discovery did. It didn't push pop music forward. It merely opened the door for countless Marauder cameos.
videos and convinced Pharrell that what the world really needed was a 24-hour happy video. Now, listen, as someone who wrote a takedown of Random Access Memories for Joe.ie uh, a yeah. few years ago, which uh, honestly, the, the tap has only recently kind of turned off on people sending me very angry <laughs> missives, uh, all, all forms. Um uh, my, my kind of reaction to this Ram thing is, uh, you know, have the courage of your convictions and stick your fucking neck out. Dropping it down to a 6.8 and giving it a little light couple of sentences there ain't good enough for me. I think the album sucks, as we know. But even if you don't, if you're going to sacred cow this thing and then like kill the sacred cow, then kill the fucking sacred cow. But Craig, they did kill a sacred cow. And I know this one really upset you. So what happened to turn on the bright lights by Interpol? <sighs> okay, they massacred my boy. <laughs> <laughs> they've reviewed turn on the bright lights twice twice dave all right they've awarded this monumental album 9.5 twice dave <laughs> spans of time apart both upon release and a decade oceans later for the anniversary time. oceans of time and now just like like it's nothing down to a 7.0 um jillian mapes has the piece and it seems like a bit of a hit piece. And she was certainly on Twitter just kind of being like, hate that band. It was, you know, basically very fun getting to write this little blurb. And I will say, you know, not to single her out, this does like going through them all. I'm not sure what this feature wants to be, right? Because it's saying it's not canon. So is it, but it's also conversations we have in the office. So they're not saying this is consensus or are they? Or, or were they just kind of, you know, giving the brief to the writer saying, you pick an album, you pick your score. Because there's this whole thing of like, Pitchfork scores are by committee as it is. So are these not canon because each blurb, each score is just given to an individual writer to kind of vent? I don't know what it's trying to be really. And certainly in the case of (laughs) Interpol, Turn On The Bright Lights, it really does just feel like one person's opinion. They don't like the band. They think, yeah, the lyrics are a bit bad. And why does he sound like Ian Curtis? Like, it's just very surface um, jabs at an album that I think still holds up, certainly for me. But it's it's more the overall process that I have huge problems with rather than them taking aim at an album I love. Turn on the bright. Sounds like I'm desperately protesting there. No, no, I, I think I think you're you're working in just enough kind of um, professionalism amongst the personal. I threw on turn on the bright lights off the back of this as well. So again, you can't say that they're not influencers because they are. Oh yeah. And I was like, again, I hadn't heard it in quite some time. Know it familiar, of course, but I was like, oh, this album fucking rules. I was like, what are we like? like what are we doing? A real swing and a miss, I thought. And as you say, the journalist has you know was not shy about displaying on social media how much she fucking hates the band and how this was very clearly hippies, which is fine i've done them myself um but i think also it just seems a bit confused as you say and one of the ones that really kind of stuck out to me uh, i'll single out one last one before we kind of have a wrap up on this and just our own kind of i'll offer my own thoughts about pitchfork these days um grimes i think is a victim of recency bias here uh miss and uh, anthropocene which i still don't know if i've ever learned how to pronounce correctly i think it's a potato potato thing this is an album that was in our top five last year, I believe, in our discussion. Mm-hmm. And I would have been absolutely happy with it. Winning album of the year. In the end, Perfume Genius is what we went with, uh, with Zara Hedeman. Um, so this album came out in January 2020. Pitchfork gave it an 8.2 out of 10. It has now been knocked down to a 6.9. And essentially the write-up just says, ah, look, it's not as good as Art Angels, is it? Um, and it lacks cohesion. But I really think that this has to be off the back of... All of the oh, fucking. This is you know. very disingenuous. It really is. Um, yeah. What is the main thing with? Yeah, the songs don't service the overall story. 
uh, not true cohesion not, not true, true at all um it's very, an excellent album jobs and yeah i think you're right i mean to open up maybe they kind of cover themselves because oh, by opening up about how like you know our feelings change um the truth's kind of you know with the truth we're always litigating how we feel about a piece of music revising opinions based on context culture who we've become who we once were but then to kind of go okay now we've enough enough distance to have a kind of clear-eyed view of these albums and then completely going against it by not having enough distance from you know grimes in the current news cycle and all that kind of stuff and being reactionary just feels like they're doing what they were complaining about doing in the actual original reviews for some of these things so yeah just a muddle a mess and everyone's reading it and everyone's talking about it so well done pitchfork well yeah listen i mean that's the thing i mean it's a strange one because i was having this conversation with a friend just last night and i was kind of making the point that i think pitchfork has lost a lot of critical heft in recent times and don't get me wrong look it's still it's still like the hipster bible for for music fans uh it's a it's a nice looking website It, it has pedigree um, I've never written for it. I never will write for it, but I would love to. I, I'd feel really fucking proud of myself if I got a byline on Pitchfork, you know, but I also haven't really tried either, but I don't think I'd, yeah, I don't think I'd get on there. But the point is, um, I do feel like they've lost their way quite a bit. Um, and maybe it is, you know, the rot coming back to haunt them. I mean, like you say that they, they reviewed Interpol twice and whatever, but like, I'll give you an, a, an infamous one. Uh, Nine Inch Nails, The Fragile, in mm. 99, or when it came out, they gave it like two out of ten, and the, the review itself is just such a joke of a review. It's like a guy having a conversation with his mate or something, and it's just... Oh my God, I hate it. Beyond... Fucking hell. Beyond college student levels of smoke. And look, we all... Like, I've done that before myself. Like, you outgrow it eventually. They re-reviewed it when it was reissued in 2017, I think, and of course, it's best new music. Uh, and we... Like, it's... People are allowed to change their minds. Like, I, like I, I, that's always... That's a life lesson, right? I mean, like especially when it comes to the arts and when it comes to music it's a question we got asked a bunch last year when we did a patreon q a have you ever changed your mind about something and to such a degree that you were like i was totally wrong and it happens and i think people arts critics in particular should hold themselves up and say wait a minute no i completely missed the point on this one and it rules and i'm all for retrospective reviews um stereogum are excellent at that um whether it's anniversary pieces or whether it's just reevaluating something and i think as well like i make the point of like say my buddy valentine's mbv coming out in 2013 and how it got five star reviews overnight and how this rush review culture that it ushered in i think people who who engage in that behavior should probably be forced to go back 6 months later or whatever it is and just like reassess it i don't know how maybe how many people would read that review versus the one that they want to read when it comes out of course that's the whole digital economy that's the problem but i do think the pitchfork has been losing credibility i think it's been hemorrhaging critical heft and i think something like this is smart because it gets them back in the conversation it has us spending over 10 minutes of it on this podcast people on twitter myself included but it also kind of feels a bit hollow and a bit mournful. It's it's weird, right? Because I feel like in many ways, Pitchfork is a bit of a relic in terms of criticism. Um, certainly in a time when there's more focus on the individual writer. You have Pitchfork as one of the kind of last, I think, remaining titles that really values that like collective opinion. Like this is the Pitchfork score. This is the Pitchfork stance on this artist. It's not so much about the byline. So if it was the original reviewers going back, you know, for, you know, Guardian reviewers picking the ones they most got wrong and kind of reevaluating, that would seem a bit more natural and make sense and maybe be a bit more engaging. But this thing of them going like, you know, this isn't canon, this isn't Pitchfork canon, you know, implying that they think they are the canon <laughs> and just muddying the waters of like, 
writers' opinions and what the pitchfork kind of boilerplate stance is. It just feels weirdly outdated at this point in time compared to, I don't know, a Fantano or just other kind of big name music writers that are playing their trade as freelancers, which I think is a space I'm much more interested in these days than just going, you know, Dave, you're saying I haven't written for Pitchfork. You don't need to write for Pitchfork. You know, you've got critical heft. You don't need that thing. It's it's kind of like artists wanting a big label deal. Do you know what I mean? I think hopefully we're moving on from that kind of model. Um, so yeah, the dying gasps of a once great publication. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, vote of confidence. I do appreciate it. Listen, we'll skip past Grimes and her antics this week, which were very yeah. stagey and annoying because we're we're defending her. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. She's she she totally that that photograph was totally candid and, and who cares? Um, although nice to see her wardrobe moving on from Soul Calibur to Fallout New Vegas, I guess this time. But nonetheless, yeah. uh, let's talk about a classic album. Seeing as we're talking about old albums, never mind. We talked about the lawsuit recently that Nirvana or I guess the estate are being faced with based on the baby who was on the cover. Um, yeah. And we kind of dismissed it, Craig. We were like, look, this is ridiculous. And he, this guy does this law for attention. And it sounds like a lot of his complaints are a little bit over the top. However, he may actually be getting his way, according to Dave Grohl. Yeah, this is um, Spencer Eldon, who has, has grown up from a baby to become an actual man, um, who has, as you say, got issues with the artwork, um, alleging that the image is an example of child pornography and sexual exploitation. Um Nirvana are about to release this 30th edition, anniversary edition of the album. Um, it's set to be released November 12th. I believe like pre-orders are up already. There's various deluxe editions. Um, the image is uncensored, so he's not getting his way right away. Dave Grohl was interviewed in uh, the Sunday Times. And, you know, we occasionally kind of give Dave Grohl a gentle ribbing. He sounded kind of exhausted and done with this story i think we can kind of align with him on this one um but he's talking about the cover of the album he says listen i've many ideas of how we should alter that cover but we'll see what happens we'll let you know i'm sure we'll come up with something good and then talking about like his attitude to the litigation he just says i think there's much more to look forward to and much more to life than getting bogged down in those kind of things unfortunately i don't have to do the paperwork so yeah um I still don't know entirely how I feel about this one because obviously it is your man's image in the sense of it is representing him as a younger kid. Um, He doesn't want the entire world seeing his um, childhood genitals um, for the release. It's clearly a piece of art. It's, you know, it's not really exploitation, I don't think, in my book. Um, I don't know. How are you feeling about this one, Dave? They could easily switch up covers. We've seen anniversary editions come out where, you know, pumpkins have done it with melancholy and infinite sadness where they just give alt versions and it can be something nice for fans it would be very easy for nirvana and the nirvana estate to just switch this up they're not getting around to it now it feels like they might be forced into doing it i don't think it's a huge deal people are going to defer to the original right yeah i think so uh, like anniversary stuff i think is actually fair game um i yeah. have the i have the recent 20th anniversary vinyl of deftones white pony and that came in this very cool uh you know kind of futuristic neon Beautiful, thingamajig yeah. and like even the the main artwork as well like just looks kind of spruced up just a little bit um so that's fine uh, and as for your man look listen i always say if someone has a, a you know a direct problem and you're like this thing hurts me and uh, no matter what it is that person should be listened to yes, uh, yeah. same time he obviously has made numerous contradictory uh, actions and statements over the years and seemed to be courting fame but if his opinion has definitely changed to this degree and he is in fact pursuing it i guess give him the benefit of the doubt um it will be interesting to see what happens down the line because that image is to use the most overused word of all time it's iconic and mm. i don't see how you can erase that from history it, a very difficult job on his hands and 
I guess we'll see what happens. But on a lighter story, Craig, uh, I, I like this one that you picked out this week. Roger Taylor of Queen has revealed that his bandmate Brian May started working on a new song for the band, but then, quote, suddenly lost interest. Uh, if you could elaborate on this one, I'd really appreciate it, man. You skipped my headline. <laughs> Brian May, stop me now. Um, I think this is for the best. I applaud Brian May. Um, so the pair of them started work on a new track with Adam Lambert. And I think we might see uh, the root of the problem here. He's been with Queen since 2011. <laughs> hey, a decade. A yeah, decade with Queen. He's clearly a good frontman then, is he? You know, I saw I saw Queen um, with Paul Rogers as the frontman. So that was clearly before 2011. It was in Point Depot. What was it then? The O2 maybe. Paul Rogers was great. I'm not sure I'm entirely sold on Adam Lambert. Um, but yeah, it seems like May wasn't a fan of what he'd put down. So to quote Taylor talking to Mojo... Uh, well, Brian suddenly lost interest. And I, I, I don't really know why. <laughs> They're the only publication picking up the phone and dialing that number to Roger Taylor. Get Brian on the phone. <laughs> he says, we started in Nashville when we were all quite tired. Um, we couldn't decide on a title and the lyric felt a little too negative for Queen, maybe, which is really kind of interesting point to me. But it was pretty damn good and I hope it comes to light. But yeah, there must be a huge amount of pressure, right? Because you've... Freddie Mercury, larger in life character, um, if not responsible for all the lyrics, certainly the overall tone and um, artistic vision of Queen. And yeah, they were a very optimis- optimistic, positive band, right? Like they never really did maudlin or if they did, it was kind of oversized and with a, a kernel of something else. So yeah, you're, you're, I guess Brian May is probably trying to stay true to his ex-bandmate's wishes or vision for the band, if we're being um, completely fair to him. And I can totally imagine him, you know, getting caught up in the creative process and just being like, we can't put this out. And, you know, would that more um, bands that are missing members and just kind of groups that are in for the money just kind of leave the creative stuff lie um, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's it, it's um it's it's outstanding to me how unnecessary and not needed and that's the same that means the same thing. Um, uh, that like like a new queen redundant song. redundant. I mean, like you you don't need to do it. Like this can be a television show that has ended its run but is just being shown on TV. Just play the hits. Like like even the most hardcore Queen fan must be like, yeah, like, why would I want a new Queen song? Like, like this doesn't make any sense to me. Listen, uh, we're, we're running tight on this new section. I, the two stories left, but I'm going to let you have to pick one. So uh, Mick Jagger or Pete Doherty Craig, the choice is yours. Um, Let's go Mick Jagger because actually there's, there's something um, tied to the story that really upset me that I need to get off my chest. This is a very Radio Nova news story, Dave, as you might have noticed. Of course. It's Mick Jagger recalling the time Keith Moon broke into his hotel room dressed as Batman. So Mick Jagger was um, on the Howard Stern show, um, which I will definitely listen to the full thing because I'm a big Howard Stern fan. But he was talking, he was just, you know, reminiscing of the old days. And we've heard these stories um, countless times about Keith Moon and his antics. Um, he's passed away many, many years ago now. He revealed that sometime in the 1970s, Moon climbed up the fire escape of his LA hotel in order to get into his room. Jagger says, Keith was a complete lunatic, which I don't know if he meant that as a pun, but it kind of works. I was in LA in a hotel once asleep and he broke into my room dressed as Batman. Presume it was, yeah, had to be Adam West version at this stage. I woke up and there was Batman in front of me with a mask and everything. It is not what you expect in the middle of the night. So Jagger went on to say that he was keeping, he had a knife on him. (laughs) 
for self <laughs> Well, hang on. I, I, was about to, I was about to pull you back and say that it actually is the kind of thing that you would expect in the middle of the night as opposed to the middle of the day as when Batman goes to work. But also course, the yeah, knife yeah, yeah. element I'll give him. You would not expect <laughs> if it was Batman. Bruce Wayne, you'd be like, okay, you're right. It must be about three o'clock. <laughs> just slept in. Um, so Jagger says he pulled the knife. Can you do a Jagger impression? I feel like this is calling out for it. I, I so genuinely I can't. Yeah, I, I, I swear. Can, I, can you? Because I've never, that's an impression I've never even thought of trying to do. I don't even know what he fully said. It's just all very kind of hoarse and kind of strainy, isn't it? Like on your throat. It's like. It's very, yeah. He's kind of. He's it. No, like, I can't, like, like, I can't do it. His voice is like. He's so, he's lived in luxury and being posh for so long that his voice has gotten so lazy it's fallen to the back of his throat kind of thing. Okay. I can't, I can't actually do it. I just know the theory behind it. But um, Keith Moon, meanwhile, said, oh no, it's Keith. <laughs> and Mick Jagger said, you're not Keith. I can tell you, it's not you from the, from the voice. And he said, no, Keith Moon, he took the mask off. And um, yeah, basically, apparently he was a nutcase. But no, he was actually a man with severe substance problems and mental health problems. And he overdosed at the age of 32. But I will say the one thing about this, right? The Rolling Stones are um, back in action. So mm-hmm. Charlie Watts passed away very, very recently. They resumed their No Filter tour across the U.S., do you know what their first gig back was? They did an intimate Charlie show. Watts they did an intimate show at like Massachusetts or something, didn't they? Or, or is this like they did an intimate stadium gig? They played right. Gillette Stadium, but it was for um, Robert Kraft, the billionaire's like 80th birthday bash. It was like a corporate billionaire's <laughs> event, and I was just like, now maybe Mick Jagger's like best mates with Robert Kraft, but there was something really upsetting to me about like. Charlie Watts has just passed away. A man you've been friends with for like 50 years. You've done it all. You're a multimillionaire. And like he's like his body isn't even cold. And you're doing a corporate event. That's the <laughs> first gig back. You're in your like, you're nearly 80 like yourself at this point, And you're like, come on, Keith. Come on, Ronnie. We have to do this. Fucking <laughs> the we, New we England yes. Patriots owner yeah, <laughs> wants us to fucking roll out the hits in front of like disinterested fucking billionaires. It just struck me as like, you know, maybe they haven't been gigging that much. And Mick was just like, I really want to play. And, you know, it was a fun time for all of them. But it struck me as really sad that the wrong songs were doing a corporate gig directly after Charlie Watts passed away. Sounds a good night. That's why town. I picked it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Uh, well, listen. Yeah, instead of, of pe- saying congratulations to Pete Doherty on getting married, there, that was that story. There we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Pete Doherty <laughs> story, actually, yeah, that's real switcheroo. You thought it was grim, it wasn't. He's, it's all <laughs> yeah. good. Well, look, listen, I mean, well, whether, whether, it's, whether it's whether it's Charlie Watts passing away or whether it's Keith Moon being weird, um, it really is the friends that break your heart, Craig. And as a matter of fact, that's the title of the album we're going to review. Here's James Blake. With no superpowers, I can take my place. Without the coming south, I might not make all those psychopaths proud. At least I can see the faces of the smaller crowds. And I'm okay. No, I can drive myself. I've been sobered by my time on the shelf. And I've been that's james blake there with say what you will track nine on the 12 track new record friends that break your heart and a, quite a knockout blow of a song i mean you expect him to be able to do this but i thought this one in particular was was, was very very um 
Very affecting, Craig. Um, tell us about James Blake, and then I have a follow-up question for you. I, maybe you can work it into the primer. I would like to know, because I know that you interviewed him back in the Hot Press days quite some time ago now. I'm, yeah, a couple of times. So, so I feel like you've been kind of, you, you've been there from, from, from day dot. I'm curious as to how you think he has developed and progressed as an artist. So if you could tie those two in together neatly, uh, no pressure. Yeah, so James Blake, I mean, very talented London artist, and he has made that progression Um that shift from producer, I guess, primarily when he first arrived, um, working in the kind of dubstep realms and on the outskirts um, of the mainstream to a more, as you hear there, um, really well executed, but a kind of more orthodox, I guess, in the spotlight singer-songwriter as his you know, star has continued to ascend and he's now headed west for Hollywood. He's got a place in Hollywood Hills and um, Comes from London. His dad was a prog rocker, I believe. Um, James Litterland um, from the band Coliseum, which I didn't really know much about, but he has that kind of thing in his DNA and he certainly nurtured it. He was like, classically trained, got a popular music degree in Goldsmiths. And yeah, as I said, his genre of choice um, initially ended up being dubstep. Like he'd host these kind of bass society nights uh, in college alongside the likes of Scream, Benga, made his own bow with... Um, air and lack thereof just great startling kind of 12 inch and he was picked up by djs like Charles peterson and was quickly picked up by the likes of grimmy on radio one it just seemed to happen quite quickly for him and i think a catalyst for that was limit your love which introduced most of us i guess to his like very fragile crystalline vocals that you heard there cover of the feist track and the self-titled record was mercury prize nominated um he was quickly beloved by the likes of Kanye working with Justin Vernon um second album won the Mercury Prize and it kind of ushered in some warmth I interviewed him for for the debut and um found him really kind of good company and a kind of thoughtful guy and um kind of funny as well because he does he's he's railed against this like sad boy image um which you know you can hear quite a bit of in the music but he's he's not like that um I interviewed him again then for the second album there was this kind of new warmth and a neo soul thing going on and it was, it developed really well in the sound, I thought. And it was kind of the sound of him falling in love with his then partner, I guess. By the third album, um, and we're into kind of no encore territory. And we reviewed it on this show back in the Cullum days. And I think the three of us were really, really feeling it, the, the colour and anything. It was this like sprawling kind of work. We had a huge amount of time for it, really. Um, some amazing textures, just like sustained mood. And we were saying at the time, you know, so it had some of the tracks of the year and we were saying this is one of those artists that are, we're like, we're on board. When he's releasing something, we're listening, our ears are pricking up. He's just doing stuff that's different. He's a vital force. Um, last album arrived, Assume Form, and it was warmer, kind of pretty in spots. Pretty much a devotional work to his current partner, uh, Jamila Jamil. And I think we we had a tougher time with it. Um maybe a bit harsh but we weren't hugely enamored with it there was some kind of you know typically celestial moments i guess um that i i in particular loved like the barefoot in the park plenty of appeal if it didn't feel like a huge step forward and he was kind of doing hip-hop things and it felt a bit safer than what we were used to um i should say as well he's just you know worked with a huge amount of artists at this point he's produced what was a forward for beyonce um co-wrote stuff on lemonade turned down drake um at one point good lad and then apparently he like um he turned down the i think it was a sa- sample or a co-production work or something 
And then he like called his managers like, how much money did I just use and just lose on that deal? And um, his manager told him and he spat out his drink. <laughs> he's like, fuck me. But he's like, he can get the likes of Andre 3000 and Rosalie and his records and life seems good. He can do what he wants. So what he wants to do on this record is, he was talking to GQ and he said he wants to make music that's a bit of fun, um, which I'm not sure you can hear on this record. This record is a pandemic record. Uh, it was written... Um, when he was kind of forced to hang out by the pool. He wants to make music for people hanging out by the pool or just going to the bathroom, apparently. This is the kind of, um, these are the waters he wants to <laughs> float in to mix some metaphors. And he was talking about it, it being a Ron Seal title. It was about that moment during the pandemic where we had to kind of take stock and go, oh yeah, some friendships are falling by the wayside, reevaluate relationships. And that is the thematic thing that's running throughout it. Dave, did it strengthen your friendship with James, how are you feeling? Are you continuing to drift apart or were you feeling this? Um, drifting is an interesting choice of words because, yeah. you know, I, I think on paper, the prospect of a new James Blake record, unless you're unless you're an acolyte going in, I think you could be like, oof, I'm going to have to steady myself for this one, you know, um, which and again, like, you know, to call back to the fact that he himself has been incredibly eloquent and I think very, um, just very kind of true about saying like, listen, I make music that can be perceived as being quite downbeat, but I'm actually, you know, I'm just a person and I've got flaws and feelings and I don't like being labeled as this sad boy because yeah. uh, that really undermines the pain I have gone through. And also, you know, an artist doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, that kind of way, um, which opens up a whole conversation, which we, I think, I think we as critics will often struggle with. I know I do. And as someone yeah. who also struggles with depression and mental health of my, in my own regard, uh, I'm obviously very empathetic towards him, but the critic in me is like, well, you know, I mean, that's kind of like the work does kind of indicate, but at the same time, uh, you know, listen, take him on his word, listen to what he has to say and, and respect him for, for, for saying it. Um, I don't think this album is fun, uh, but I don't think it's not fun. Um, and I think, like I say, I, I think James Blake, just those two words together, just conjure up the idea of like um, heaviness, but also uh, an art, an articular, I can't, is that a word? I was going to say articular C. It's not... Uh, I'll say I'll just say articulate nature. Uh, I, I felt yeah. like I was doing pretty well there. I, I, I was I was I was weaving words left and right, but then I I stumbled. That's what he does to you. Um, I think his music is very dense. Um, I, 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 and for me, it's weird because like he's never worked in a live setting for me. Now, granted, I've only ever seen him at festivals, uh, which is totally not the place to see him. I think, um, but like on a record he can draw you in and it's weird because like th this was like simultaneously like i listened to this a bunch you know I i'd say i got like 10 listens of this in and a few repeats a few like let's go straight back in there and i did find it hard to kind of parse it i found it hard to kind of um to take it apart um i don't think it's formless necessarily i wonder if it is a bit samey i do think that it's 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 very it's very interesting it's very pleasant on the ear and i think that he's doing his thing incredibly well i wonder if he's ran out of road a bit though and i also wonder like and this is something i just thought of when you mentioned the whole you know music for people by the pool thing uh this might not be fair whatsoever but i but i, I have to ask craig is james blake divorce core <laughs> well he was very much marriage core in the last record and um <laughs> this is squarely aimed at friends we are being told and Jamila Jamil has co-write credits on this as well um so it seems like everything's all good I know what you mean, though, because we've talked about um, Divorce Core on previous episodes of this show and, you know, positioned it firmly in the 80s where you've kind of got big, you know, production with a certain amount of sheen and high quality <laughs> compositions and artists that are pouring their heart out in a very kind of immaculate way. So in terms of aesthetically, 
I definitely think there's a thread you could draw there. Um, it's interesting, you know, the debate between his kind of more out there boundary pushing production work and him wanting to put himself front and center and be a songwriter continues. And it was there on the debut record. Like I remember talking to him and he was getting some jobs for the debut record. And he was kind of saying, listen, I'm really in love at the time he was talking about, um, with the music of Arthur Russell, who did that splendidly, where you just create these incredible underground dance records, but also um, just really heartbreaking singer-songwriter stuff. And that was kind of what he was going for back then, that really kind of interesting mix. And it can be quite intoxicating when you get them alongside each other. I don't know if the mix is here, um, to be quite honest. And there are kind of levels, of course, going into this review. So it should be said, you know, it does sound immaculate. Um, if you were in the studio with him, I'm sure he would absolutely wow you. His voice is spectacular on occasions and there's some great songs. Um, it's a very autumnal record. It was, should have been great for like this moment. Um, I wish it had kind of been a better companion over the course of the week, to be honest. It just felt like a real cloudy day of a record, man. It was, you know, a polished considered drag to my ears and, I think there's thematic issues when you say running out of road, um, like last record kind of loved up. And I think there was some spectacular moments he got from that. Um, and we want the best from him, of course, but we're kind of saying, where, where do you go with that? And where he's gone is this analysis of friendship. But, um, I think it's a kind of communication issue. I wonder if it's his lyricism, um, because these songs to me, whatever about the, a sonic kind of emotion but they really feel like they've all the kind of urgency and drama of like realizing you're gonna to have to be economical with the numbers at a dinner party do you know what i mean there doesn't feel like there's stakes um so i'm not invalidating his feelings but just lyrically it feels kind of listless and i think sonically it can be quite stripped back um it can be quite monochrome um I kept thinking back to like the mental gymnastics the three of us went through when we did the review for The Colour and Anything for the um, 70 something, 76 minute runtime. And us kind of saying like, <laughs> goes against no encore ethos, but like it kind of <laughs> demands that runtime because the material was so rich and he was mining kind of great stuff. There was huge contrast between the experimentation from track to track, but it was all kind of shades of like gray um, to use that phrase that's now kind of ruined whereas in contrast this just felt very monochrome and it's far shorter but like I've got to admit if I'm insecure that closing track at the very end of that I was I was out for a run one of my first listens through um, there's a kind of a pause towards the end of it and there's this like dull thud and I had <laughs> I was listening to it going I didn't have my phone out so I was thinking okay the, the album's wrapping up and that thud happened and I was like I instantly felt like, oh no, there's another song going to start. Mm, I can't yeah. just switch, I can't just move on to something else. Same. It was that feeling of like when the doorbell goes and you're like, I don't want to have to deal with whatever this is presenting me. I just, I didn't want to listen to more of what he was selling. <clears throat> I didn't want to return to it straight away. That's the kind of effect it had on me. And um, there is great moments, but it just didn't work for me. The sparse kind of palette, the airiness of it. It felt very samey and at times quite slight. Yeah. So, I mean, like I had, uh, I was, I, I, I had my in-ear earphones in and I was like away from my laptop because that's where I was 
like that, that's where the link was. I didn't have it on my, I couldn't get it to work on my phone for some reason. So, um, at one stage I was like do, doing something in another room and then I heard like the thud cause there, it, it ends with like, just like a, like, like sounds like someone like dropping like a bag of, like a bag of cement or something. Yeah. And I heard the thud and at first I was like, oh fuck, has my window slammed shut again? Cause it's really windy. And then I was like, oh no, hang on, I think that's the end of the song. And then I was like, is that, is that the end of the album? And I was like, that's a really weird way to end an album. And then I was like, it is the end of the album, but it didn't, it didn't come back on automatically. And I was just like listening to silence for like a minute. And I was like, what? I was like, what's the statement? Uh, but also on top of that, all right, okay. I'm aware, I'm, I'm going to throw like one of the worst criticisms right now. I'm going to ask you the question. Is it fair to say that this album never gets going? Yeah, I would, I would say for certain, um, say what you will, it was glorious. I think it's I think amazing. moments where, yeah, it's a real, and it's the centerpiece, isn't it? It's like, it's, it's exactly what he's clearly going yeah, so for. Sorry, so sorry. Yeah, it, it gets going actually. on track nine. Sorry. <laughs> like, I, I'll walk back my criticism. <laughs> yeah. I like that closing track, right? For, for example, and again, there's gorgeous production on this. There's these kind of like, it's ornate tumbling scenes. Yeah. 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 There's these kind of tumbling sense to that and it's it's great. And he's doing, again, lyrically, it, it's not working because he's talking about if I'm insecure, how am I sure that I'm going to care for you until I'm no more? Something like that, which just feels very like one doesn't beget the other. It feels weirdly dependent and it's just weak sauce. I don't know, right? But there's moments where there's kind of an organ and string swell and it feels like, oh, okay, um, there's this ascension. The clouds are kind of finely parting. It feels like geared up for a switch into something like, um, like mini Ripperton. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like a kind of our fifth dimension thing, just pure kind of psychedelic California soul where it just erupts and you're like, and it just never happens. Clouds don't burst. It just retreats kind of apologetically and time and time again on this album, that's what happens. It's just exactly what you're expecting the melody to do, exactly what you were expecting the production to do. It does it. And with his voice front and center, beautiful though it is, I just think it really puts in relief how how the lyrics can be quite self-helpy. They feel occasionally like platitudes. I just don't think he's, you know, exactly a Dylan or a Billie Eilish or I don't know if there's enough to sink your teeth into with what he's doing content-wise in these songs. Um, not to be really pushing the boundaries and doing kind of what he, what I think he might do best. But he's clearly happy making this music, and um, it's not the worst music. It just will, it just will not live long in my memory. I don't think. Well, you don't sound too happy to listen to it. Give me a number. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go five. To be honest, real in the middle. And again, it's quality to a certain extent. But I, I, I don't know if I can be recommending this to people. I will pick a few songs, but yeah, it's um, it's getting to a point where going from an artist that I was just like, he's one of the leading lights. He kind of really excites me. I don't know if I'm now looking for the next James Blake release um, as much as I have huge respect for him. That's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, I'll join you in that five because ultimately I thought it was wallpaper. Even the SZA feature didn't really stand out too much or excite me. But I do think that Say What You Will is an absolutely stunning track and he's still capable of being interesting. But yeah, yeah, it's not it's not really here. And it it has been yeah, it's been like five years now since he made a truly great album. And who knows, maybe he will again. But uh, look, we'll move on. Actually, before we move on, like let's let's give James Blake his due Uh, and it might tee in the next section nicely. Uh, Let's let's have a quick listen. Craig mentioned that he won the Mercury Prize before which led to an infamous interview on Newsnight. <laughs> Let's have a quick listen to that and then we'll and then we'll move into songs about haters.
Now, sadly, not all of our Newsnight viewers will have downloaded uh, Overgrown yet. What can they expect? Um, well, uh, don't let this, uh, you know. Orble. <laughs> don't let this bauble sway. You just, just. Uh, I hope that it takes you to a place that is uh, positive for you. I don't know. But what's your record like? I mean, is it a howl of pain about England and the planet today, or is it more ambient chillax? Give us a flavour. Oh, chillax. That's progressive for news now. Uh, very progressive. Anything beyond skiffle is progressive, but... Okay, wonderful stuff. I mean, I, I don't know if you could accuse that critic, Craig, of being a hater necessarily, more ignorant, but it is time for our top five songs about haters, and I think, we, I think we've done a good enough intro, but if you've anything left to say before we get going, in the spirit of friendship, and I hope that we'll still be friends at the end of this one. Um, just going to say that next week's top five will, of course, be top five ambient chillax, uh, but let's get yeah. on with this week's <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> uh, start your predictions now. Okay, it's top five songs about haters, and... Uh, I'll go first this week. Why not? Um, so yeah, I, uh, this, like, this was tricky. I mean, like, as I said earlier at the top of the show, um, the emo genre in particular, the new metal genres in particular, like they, they lend themselves quite, quite well to this type of stuff. But I tried, I've, I've tried, I, I may have failed, but I've tried to be a bit, um, a little bit diverse. I'm not going to pat myself on the back for that because I do think I have failed. Uh, but I've also tried to find the light side of this kind of stuff because, I mean, like I, I think hate's a very strong word. Uh, I think it's often kind of misassociated with people. And by people, I mean me. Uh, I should say that, like, I've I, I've been told all my fucking life, man, oh, you hate this, you hate that, la, 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 la. Like, I heard it for years. I heard it when I worked in Extravision. I heard it when I worked in Hot Press. I've heard it now, you know, like, no matter what I do, whether it's the podcast, whether it's writing articles, whatever it is. And don't get me wrong, I went through that phase. I went through that kind of pre-college, even maybe during college phase of just, like, you know, I worked in Extravision, I thought I was Randall from Clerks. I went to college, I wanted to be Charlie Brooker. And for sure, I've definitely been quite, uh, you know, um, abrasive from time to time. But I maintain that generally, particularly as I have gotten older, um, generally, you know, I, I think that I, I'm a passionate guy, Craig. You know, I, I, I think having an opinion and sharing that opinion and, you know, in the Irish music scene where everyone knows each other, you should be allowed, say, that X band aren't great. You know, just try not to cross a personal yeah. line, yada, yada. But, like, I think hate is a complex emotion. I, I I think hate is actually something that, like, people kind of use it shorthand. But, like, if you really drill it down, hate's a really fucking strong thing. So I think with the five songs I've picked here, they speak to different forms of it. And with that in mind, we'll start with an emo song. And let go. Start it over again in Mexico. boy and the song is I Don't Care Craig got up immediately out of his seat and walked away he was getting a charger he had his headphones on but it did look like he was walking away in disgust hang on uh, Sonic Architect Adam has informed me of something that can't possibly be true is this the first time Fall Out Boy have made it to a top 5? it is yeah I'd say it most definitely is and I thought they'd be in sooner that's genuinely um, shocking to me because my like the reason I picked this one like this is a slighter Fall Out Boy song for sure it's in that kind of latter part of their career when maybe they're not quite as sharp as they have been before and they're not necessarily a band that I grew up adoring necessarily but I do think 
I think Fall Out Boy are really fucking underrated as songwriters. I think they're very, very good at songwriting. And also, I think, like, for what they are, they're a band that attract a lot of hate themselves. I mean, like, this song, of course, I Don't Care, is, you know, very clearly in that vein. Uh, it's right there in the chorus line, you know, I don't care what you think as long as it's about me, which actually reminds me um, of the Preacher graphic novel series that I loved when I was a teenager. All right, yeah. And I remember in that, there's one line in particular by... Uh, star who's like the main antagonist of the of the series and there's a part where he's like talking with some fucking military guy and the military guy's giving him guff and star's response is something like i don't care if you like me loathe me or masturbate screaming my name uh, which i've always thought was like the edgiest uh, line when i was a teenager I was like that's fucking cool bro there's only three options yeah <laughs> and i guess <laughs> that's life kind of, yeah. i guess that's kind of what fall are getting along here maybe it's the oscar wilde thing to be to put a bit more gravitas on it you know the only thing worse than people talking about you is people not talking about you if i've got that quote correct so this is Fallout Boy tapping into their various media scrums over the years, their various perceptions thereof. Uh, they were like for, for I think in the mid two thousands, late two thousands, they were certainly a zeitgeist band. They're still yeah. a big deal, um, but I do think honestly, and I remember I remember like Claire Beck was on the show before when we reviewed their probably the most recent album. I remember her laughing out loud, and she was like, "Some of these songs are absolute garbage." And Claire knows her stuff. Love to Claire, but I have to disagree with that sentiment. I think they're I think they're a very underrated band. They're quite knowing, aren't they? So even when they made the full transition to like big pop songs, it was kind of with a wink and a nudge and they like knew what they were doing. And I think they were ahead of the curve in terms of like, there's no such thing as selling out anymore. Um, you could you could make a case maybe that they're like the emo American Manic Street Preachers because they do have that interesting relationship where you've got like, you know, um, the singer crafting melodies and writing the songs, but you've got then, you know, Pete Wentz doing the lyrics kind of adding that angle and i've always had a lot of time for what his writing in general um right back to when i was introduced to him reading probably q magazine and he was interviewed and he was talking about his like love of hemingway and i think he had a dog at the time that was called hemingway and i was like yeah this guy's all right <laughs> i love some of their titles i kind of like that irreverence uh i think they're funny and they've got some tunes and this is one of them well, I'd so, make, yeah uh, before you wrap so, up I, i'd make the case that as you yeah kind of carrying from what you're saying and I, and I would throw this in there. I think Fall Out Boy are, are a very good greatest hits band. And anytime I, yeah. I I use that phrase, I always feel like it sounds damning or something. But I think there's a lot to be said for being a good greatest hits band. And I think Fall Out Boy are, are, are good when they tap into a bit of Venom, as they do here. It is a throwaway song, but I think it's a very enjoyable one. All right, my number five. Um, I was talking about Steer and Clear of Hip Hop. Um, haven't managed to do that. I also haven't managed to continue my commendable run of... Um, not picking songs from this gentleman. Them. I guess I should have forget where I came from. nothing taken for graduation um i think it's one of those cult favorites maybe it was a big enough song but kanye's talked about it being maybe the his favorite of his songs um and he's got a lot of them um i'm gonna use that word i sometimes use and be like i think this is like the ur text when it comes to kanye's fuck the haters songs um because 
I just think it's all here. I think that tag, that hook, that nah, 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 wait till I get my money right, then you can't tell me nothing. It's such a kind of go fuck yourself. And it sets up, you know, he'd been he'd been kind of swimming in those waters for a bit with some of his albums, but he'd been playing um, the game to a large extent. This was the more bullish Kanye. This was the I'm now stadium sized Kanye. And he was starting to get very peeved with just the world around him and um, how he was being dictated to. And I think this became his mantra. Um, and it's really just, I think a lot of these songs, will, will, as we go through them, what's great about them is how you can kind of live vicariously through them. And it's not so much about the targets, the kind of haters. It's as much about them acknowledging that things are shit and people can be shit. But actually, do you know what, just... It doesn't matter. <laughs> and just you kind of, kind, of, kind of live vicariously through them and go, yeah, actually, fuck it. It doesn't matter. And we can tell those haters what we think of them. Or we can tell those people that are, you know, making a mess of our lives what we think of them. We can't always do that. Um, but if you stick on a Kanye song, maybe you can get kind of get through it a bit. I really like this kind of era Kanye as well. I think it's getting weirdly slept on. Um, I don't know where graduation would be in your rankings, Dave. Maybe that's a discussion for another day. I, think, I don't know if it's top five. Um, I mean, like, it's certainly one of the lower ones. I think I have dismissed it. And I think that that kind of is common parlance for a lot of people. But then again, you do have people. And I think, I think I've think i seen Dean Van Nguyen as well being like, graduation fucking rules. People need to hail it more. Maybe I'm misattributing yeah, that. I think he, he kind of ushered in the sense and he was doing that more. Like, they were bigger pop songs. They were directed at huge audiences and huge amounts of haters and you were coming off the back of like late registration which was just so ornate and i think one of his perfect albums actually i probably have late registration in his top two nearly um but graduation there's some you know drunken hot girls isn't the best but how can you argue with this this is like a huge one flashing lights my god that beat one of his greatest beats and yeah i think this set the table for everything that was to come the likes of power, you know, um, screams from the haters, having a nice ring to it. And then I don't know if I'm spoiling later songs, but yeah, real friends being just kind of him. Then that kind of lonely sonar sound at the bottom of the ocean where he's just like followed this to its log- logical conclusion and he can't really trust anyone around him, even his cousins who are like blackmailing him because they've nicked his laptop that has loads of porn on it. <laughs> this is setting the table for that. And for that, I am grateful. Uh, Kanye did not make my list because I have at least one concession to make at somewhere along the way. Okay. But up next, someone that he's very familiar with bounced out of my list, came back in, and I felt it was it was time to give her her flowers in this regard. So it's Kanye's buddy for me at number four. Rumors lie, and I know you heard about me, so hey, let's be friends. I'm dying to see how this one ends. Grab your passport and my hand. I can make the Guys, good for a weekend. So it's gonna be forever, or it's gonna go down in flames. You can tell me when it's over, mm, if the high was worth the pain. Got a long list of ex lovers, they'll tell you I'm insane. Cause you know I love the play. So, uh, Craig started shaking his head there when Taylor Swift's blank space came on. Are you really gonna deny that chorus, Craig? I was just shaking it off, man. I was just shaking it Nicely off. Nicely done. What were you shouting there? Starbucks, was it? Yeah, we talked on a recent, I think it was No Ox Course, just about misheard lyrics and the star-crossed Starbucks. I always thought it was Starbucks lovers because there was 
I don't know. Sign up to the Patreon and you can hear the full rambling explanation I gave. <laughs> That's the current episode of No Ox <laughs> That's Ox-Cory. Yeah, it's a good episode. Patreon.com slash No if you want to unlock that baby. Um, so listen, Taylor Swift, uh, I bounced her out at one stage because I think the next, like, I think some of my songs deal with like media, like responding to the media and I kind of was like, well, I can't have this one if I'm going to have the next one because they're kind of dealing with the same thing to a degree. But then I thought, no, actually, I'll bump, an e- I'll bump another emo band. Uh, Taken Back Sunday were supposed to be on this list, but they got bounced. I might refer to them a bit later. But um, I think that this is the best version of Taylor Swift doing the uh, ch- throwing it back in people's faces thing. Um, of course, you know, she refers to the long list of ex-lovers. They'll tell you I'm insane. So it's taking shots at like uh, various boyfriends. You know, she's often been accused, continues to be of dating high-profile male celebrities to just boost her own profile. Maybe there's some truth to that. Who knows? I'm not involved in the Hollywood machine. Um, But I think that this is a better... This is from 1989. This is from 2014, I believe. Uh, An album that I think put her on a lot of kind of hipsters' radars, including uh, Ryan Adams, less about that the better. You know, Mm. he showed her how to make a good album, Craig, by by re-recording it himself. Um, So Now, in fairness, I don't... (laughs) Like, let's be fair to Ryan. I don't think that was his intention. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to quote Craig Fitzpatrick. Let's be fair to Ryan Adams, he says. He loved the material and was hoping that if he did this, um, she might sleep with him. That was actually the intention, (laughs) I'd imagine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so anyway moving on uh i think for example if you can if you c- contrast this with reputation like three years later um this is so much stronger i think in terms of both the song is better oh. than anything on there the 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 message is better the ownership is better uh this is taylor swift believable for me has conviction feels gen- i've talked so often about her feeling like a corporate product more than a person which again might be unfair in and of itself but Someone who has have, had to suffer the slings and arrows that she has had, you would hope that it would lead to uh, some good craft and here she's done it. And I kind of kept going back to this one this week and I thought that the chorus, in fact, justified the means. And it's a rare example where I'm kind of rooting for her as opposed to against her. So It's a brilliant song. She's got some absolutely brilliant songs. She's extremely talented. And yeah, it's interesting that actually she's a lot... Her and Kanye have a lot in common in terms of like their artistry and um, the themes they pick and the targets that they have and their kind of worldview to a large extent because um, certainly in that kind of pop realm, she does this this kind of song quite a lot. I think far more than a lot of her peers and she does it really well. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to fight this choice. It's a better song than Shake It Off. That that We've talked about my hatred of that song before. Um, and we won't continue to talk about it. Let's go to my number four. This is as far from stadiums as you can possibly get. So from my converted garage to a garage in Dayton, Ohio. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> featuring in the top five i think it's game of pricks it's from alien lanes which is um maybe one of two albums that people are always kind of recommended to get into um when they're trying to dive into the huge daunting back catalog of guided by voices um along with b thousand this was the follow-up in 1995 to that kind of crossover um but it was still as you can probably hear quite lo-fi they just signed to like matador for i think like a hundred grand advance or something it was huge for matador at the time but They've talked about how recording this album was 
if you leave out the cost of the beer, it costs them $10. <laughs> and um, It's 41 minutes long, this album. It's got 28 songs on it. And this is probably the best one. And um, there's some absolute gems on it. If, if you want to hear a kind of um, a power pop, clean, really punchy, ultra rock version of this, there is a version, uh, Tiger Bomb, which might kind of get you on board. But just, yeah. Robert Pollard, um, mastermind behind GBV, just couldn't really fail at this point of time in terms of those incredible melodies. It's a minute and a half long and it just does a really good job at looking at a trail, kind of backstabbery, um, within a group of friends and the kind of, I guess, the small time music business. It's very obscured, it's very vague, but there's some killer lines in there and he was going through, this was a guy... I think approaching 40 who was you know third grade teacher had a day job was just you know recording albums with his friends whilst drinking beer at the weekends and um they crossed over somehow and kept changing lineups we're dealing with the politics of indie labels and i think he deals with that really well here the kind of weird friendships um when money gets involved but you're kind of a band of brothers and as much as there's kind of like barbed lines in here, there's a weird kind of Zen acceptance. Like it's, you know, I'm also fucked up. Um, we're all imperfect. And it's not as bitter as some of the other songs, I think, on these lists, despite sounding far more curdled. But um, yeah, this is my, I guess, annual now appeal for everyone to get into GBV. <laughs> <They're> great. <laughs> your uh, your fundraising campaign for guided by voices. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All of my Patreon proceeds are directly funneled into GBV merch. <laughs> um, okay, listen. Uh, my next one, right? So I really wrestled with this because um, it was an artist who previously, like whatever about Fall Out Boy, this was an artist who I'm pretty sure had never been in a top five of mine before, and then this artist was in fact in a top five of mine less than a month ago. So I was like, and it's kind of it's potentially mining the same ground even then as well. But I went back and forth on it and I thought if I'm going to have songs about haters, this to me is kind of not quite the urtext, but certainly <laughs> a real like statuesque moment in this. So I had to have it. And here's my number two. Look where it's at. Middle America. Now it's a tragedy. Now it's so sad to see an upper class city having this happening. Then attacking the nim because I rap this way. But I'm glad because they feed me the fuel that I need for the fire to burn. And it's burning and I get returned. And I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't, then why would I say I am? In the paper, the news, every day I am. Radio won't even play my jam. Because I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't, then why would I say I am? In the paper, the news. So, yeah, it is, of course, Eminem. Song is the way I am. I won't spend too long on this pick because, uh, like, when I picked Stan on a recent top five, I kind of said a lot of, you know, there's no point in repeating myself too hard. But I will say that I think the way I am is an absolutely great text. I think it's a great takedown of someone who was taken down himself. Uh, I think it hits out a lot of the right, like, like kind of a lot of the right targets. I, I'm hesitant to, to, to ever give Eminem a universal, hey, everything he says is great, man, because obviously it ain't. Um, and even this song is kind of tainted in a weird way. I mean, even where I picked up the lyrics there, it's coming immediately after a mention of Marilyn Manson and Marilyn Manson's in the video oh. as well. And I think he did some production work on it too. But, uh, you know, it's referencing the Columbine stuff as well. And I know that people even back then were like, oh, like everything's Marilyn Manson such a fucking intellectual because he has that one line in the film Bowling for Columbine. But I 
that line spoke to me. Uh, for anyone who's never seen that film, he's being interviewed by Michael Moore and Michael Moore signs off and says, uh, if those kids were still here today, what would you say to them? Because obviously Marilyn Manson was blamed, even though it was kind of apocryphal in a weird way. Um, and Marilyn Manson said, I wouldn't say anything to them. I just listened to them because that's what nobody did. And don't get me wrong, it was great PR for Marilyn Manson and it's one of those kind of cool Hollywood lines, but he said it and I thought it was effective and I thought it made a lot of sense. And as a fan of him at the time, and a fan of Eminem at the time, I was obviously drawn into that for sure. Um, I don't necessarily think that Eminem was necessarily the truth, but I'm sure as an angsty, angry teenager, I thought he was great. I thought this album was very effective and I do think that the way I am, first of all, I think it sounds amazing. I think he sounds incredible on it. I think his lyrics are really, really sharp. I think his delivery is brilliant. Uh, he's a million miles away from the artist he is today when he's writing songs for fucking venom i think he's doing another one for the new one <laughs> like I, I, I should i should say as well that um uh, i'm a big fan of uh so matt from tebby rex will occasionally message me which is like eminem venom related things uh which i find very funny and i i highly encourage people to do and on the subject of tebby rex uh, an act that we certainly do not hate they have announced their new album, by the way, so that's coming out soon. So go check that out if you're if you're a Tebby nice. Rex stan. But yeah, look, Eminem's Eminem. I mean, I I rarely throw him on, but in a, in a in a song of this nature, I think he managed to kind of fight back against the people fighting against him. Look, it all helped, you know. Like it was all part of the fucking the story and the campaign. And a song like this could only generate those headlines that he needed, and it all worked. It was of a simpler time kind of pre-internet kind of post new age thing going on with the internet like it was it, it was it felt like it felt like his cd had weight to it because of songs like this and i think it does hold up so you know fair play to me he writes a good song yeah. every now and then and there's a lot of this kind of ilk as well i i was kind of toying with the idea of including eminem because it felt like a kanye thing of like he's he's excelled so much in this genre he should be represented um what was it brain damage where he like literally names his high school bully and all that kind of stuff like he just does that so well and so on point and yeah i agree the production is kind of cool like machiavelli era tupac which i'm always here for um so a nice one um my number three is one that had to feature and this is when um a finger pointing artist gets very 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 specific you got a lot i knew I say you are my friend When I was down You just a thick grinning You got a lot of nerve To say you got a helping hand to lend You just want to be on the side Bob Dylan Positively 4th Street and um, as I say I had to put it in like when the childlike glee we get from listening to Push's story of Adidon it's kind of some of that in this one still even though it's like what 60, 50, 60 years on I genuinely just thought you were setting yeah. up the story of Adidon I was shocked not to hear it <laughs> um, Drake isn't a hater he's just uh, an irritant deadbeat dad um oh, well. no, he's fodder the year now he's fodder the year now um <laughs> thanks to push it back to bob dylan and this is just incredible to Meyer still because it's like 1965 um bob dylan is like being heralded as more than a musician more than a voice of generation he's like a prophet in popular culture very young man and i always just think of like this is so specific that people in greenwich village like there's a, a, clearly a group or maybe a person that he was aiming this at. And I always think of like, imagine being them. 
and everyone in your circle knowing this was related to you and this like fucking prophet who's been like talking about like you know the answer blown in the wind suddenly turns his gaze to you and is like you are an absolute piece of shit you're a hypocrite <laughs> i have no time for you and that fucking closing kiss off of um lyric here i wish that for just one time you could stand inside my shoes you'd know what a drag it is to see you (laughs) this is fucking great and combined with the fact that this was coming off the back of this was like a standalone single uh didn't appear on um highway 61 revisited or blonde on blonde it followed on from like a rolling stone which is kind of um quite acerbic as well um that was a huge hit so there was a lot of kind of spotlight on this and just that band i think it's one of the greatest bands of all time those players um al cooper's organ it's just this undulating bouncy like it's got a life of its own thing going on and it's quite carefree it's like it's an upbeat melody but just everything he's saying is like so withering and so pointed behind like his wayfarer shades and um yeah i had to include it like joni mitchell's talked about um this being one of the biggest inspirations for her to get like into music and at the start of her career she said um quote there came a point where i heard a dylan song called positively fourth street and i thought oh my god you can write about anything in songs it was a revelation to me and yeah i mean at the time it must have been something else because here was this folky that was suddenly just like basically doing a diss track it might be the first diss track so i had to include it Nice. I wasn't expecting uh, a crediting of the first disc track in history on, on this episode, but here go. we are, which I appreciate. Um, my runner up this week is, um, it's a bit of a strange one. So, I mean, like a band I don't really know that well and never really investigated uh, and a song, I wouldn't say I have a love hate relationship with it, but it was a song that I was never fully convinced by, but it has a personal meaning for me. And it is about hatred, so here it is. A nervous bleeding in my brain An ounce of peace is all I want for you Will you never call again? And will you never say that you loved me Just to put it in my face? And will you never try to reach me? It is I that want to say Hate me today super literal now uh that song is called hate me uh it's by a band called blue october uh and i will say that i was thinking about having hate me now by nas in this list because it's an amazing song and i love it but i wasn't sure if that was in fact i don't know acceptable or not maybe it would be a problematic selection i don't know if craig has it coming up next well i guess we'll find out but like <laughs> hate me now is a hell of a song <laughs> anyway the point is the song is just called hate me and the band are blue october so like i there's they're a texan band um i really don't know much about them they're emo as hell from what i can tell and it's a bit kind of middle of the road rock radio um a really good friend of mine one of my best friends a guy called dave um who i worked with in extra vision i remember he recommended the song to me and it clearly meant a lot to him and the song is about depression and it's about drug addiction and it's about all that kind of stuff and it's about the singer struggling in that way. And it ain't subtle. There are some, there are some frankly, very bad lyrics in this song. Uh, and it is just really kind of, it's the kind of song where even, even picking a snippet of it for this one, I was kind of nervous to play it because I'm aware of just how fucking on the sleeve angsty it is. And it's one of those songs for me and maybe there are songs for you of this nature as well, whether you love them or don't, but... It's a song that to me only makes sense if you listen to it from start to finish. And it is like a, the full version of this is like six and a half minutes. And 
I think he, I think it eventually does become overpowering in the right ways. But the way that the song starts off actually really, really speaks to me, and and it also makes me wonder about the appropriate use of of of, of kind of uh, external sources. I mean, like we we reviewed um, I think you were off for this episode, Craig, but I think Zara and I reviewed the the recent Killers album, which is made up of a, a yeah. lot of um, a lot of kind of voice clips and kind of audio captures and stuff. And I guess. You know, like we obviously did the samples episode recently and that kind of thing. But this song opens up with the singer, uh, Justin Furstenfeld, I think is his name. Uh, He plays uh, a voicemail he got from his mother who was concerned about his well-being. And that's part of the song. And I'm sure he went to her and said, hey, can I use this in a song, please? But it is, it's questionable in a way, but maybe it's also great art. But there's a part in it where she's basically saying that like, She's asking if he's taking his medication and it signs off and she kind of has the thing where she says, um, I know you're under a lot of pressure. And that really, really got to me. There was just something about that kind of parent to child thing. Um, and for some reason, that bitch just fucking punched me all the way through the chest at the moment. And, you know, personal stuff aside, um, I've spoken a lot on this show about, you know, my own mental health, my own depression, that kind of stuff. And I do find that those relationships can be very, very complex and tricky and they can carry um, an, an unbearable weight to them um, and an unbearable emotion to them. And I think setting it to music uh, can be very dangerous. And I think that even in a song such as this one, which again, listen, it's, I don't even know how much I like it, but I know that it, <laughs> it, it, it had that effect on me the idea of like the level of kind of self-hatred that you have for yourself where you you block out any kind of love that comes in for you um particularly when it comes from an extremely close person in your life is kind of what i take from those moments and there's just something so disarming and so raw about hearing that opening even though again like i say like from a critical point of view i'm like well this is ridiculous this is cheesy as fuck it's so american you know it's so sentimental and saccharine but I'm like, but there's also just something like really organically beautiful, embryonic about that that opening 30 seconds and just those that little touch just when she's like, I know you're under a lot of pressure. For some reason, I was just like, fuck, <laughs> like that's that's a real thing. And like I say, my uh, my great friend, Dave, I know that the song means a lot to him as well. And I could kind of tap into it. And I know a lot of people who kind of struggle with um, almost everyone I fucking know, man, struggles in some way with how they view themselves. And sometimes you need a really direct unsubtle song like this one. And I respect that it exists essentially. Very, very fair. Um, I don't have any Nas, sorry to say. Okay. I was, I was playing around with the idea of, no, I actually wasn't playing around with the idea of it, but I was thinking in a different time, I might've picked Morrissey's We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful because it's so perfect. And the song title alone <laughs> is phenomenal. Yeah. So good. Um, but I have gone with um, a bands that were um, contemporaries of the Smiths. Um, so this is a peace-loving, new-agey type act getting kind of bitter and twisted in the 1980s. Um, it's a band I don't know a huge amount about. So they're your, um, um, they're your Blue October then in that case, yeah? Yeah, they are <laughs> to a certain extent. Um, of course, we all know 
Hole of the Moon, which is just an absolute masterpiece. Can I just, um, sorry, I, I don't want to do yeah, that thing where well, I always interrupt you, and I am sorry for doing so, but can I just say that, like, Hole of the Moon was a song that I thought was absolutely dreadful when I grew up. I couldn't stand it. It had a weird triggering, gosh. yeah, it had a weird triggering effect on me. Uh, I just, I, I couldn't run out of a room fast enough. And I remember uh, probably around when I was about 21 or something, I remember someone on like a music forum, like when I used to post on those back in the day. And somebody was like, it's it's one of the greatest songs ever. Like when was the last time you actually listened to it? And I was like, yeah, fair enough. It has been a while. And then I became absolutely obsessed with it to the point where I was I like, know. I might get lyrics of a tattooed on me someday, which I haven't done. But I, I, I think you spoke, uh, I, I spoke about Wings, You Just Flew is one of the great short stories in music and it's just what fucking seven words or something so good it's yeah it's it's one of those songs uh, but we shouldn't be talking about this song but it just transcends so much it's pure poetry it's like you can't believe that someone wrote it there's an amazing video on youtube of mike scott in a primary school in like clifton in connemara in like 1987 when they were massive right and he's just like I think they were recording Fisherman's Blues, which is a great album as well. I really love the title track. And he'd kind of gone fully into like, oh yeah, getting into, he's from Edinburgh, but he's like, yeah, I love Celtic music and I'll just go to Galway and record this album. But he was, I guess, either roped into like visiting these school kids or he just happened to stop by. But he's in like the PE hall on the piano and he's got like a cool cap on like scarf he's like full rock star mode and there's like kids just sitting on the floor kind of cross-legged and stuff and he does this thing of like so if anyone knows this you can you know sing along and he starts playing fucking the hole of the moon and they fucking erupt <laughs> and start singing along to the whole thing and it's just like this is pure joy i need to see this that's <laughs> so good but take us back to hate that um, yeah this is kind of joyous joyous as well in a weird way right because it's like um be my enemy it sounds like he's enjoying having a nemesis. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's very spirited. Uh, the imagery is just, there's thickets of words tumbling over themselves. And it's it's kind of like the evolution of that Bob Dylan song, really. It's, it's very um, straight ahead. Uh, it's leaning into the bitterness and the bile, whilst also, I think, acknowledging that it'll be the ruination of everyone. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think that might be a live version which appears on the album. There's some atmospheric stuff going on. It might have been a Gastonbury thing. This was their big record, um, This Is The Sea, 1985. When Mike Scott said he kind of mastered, like, the big music, this was the sound he was going for for, like, years upon years, and he did it, and he had huge success with it, and he felt like he was done with it. And, um, yeah, I guess the Waterboys, mostly known for their ballads, and um, they're new agey spirit, but they could do songs like this. And it's just kind of contagious. It's infectious. I hadn't listened to it in absolute years, but there was a period where I just kind of got very caught up in it. And um, it's got great energy. It can kind of get you going. And it was really good to revisit. Um, so yeah, maybe I need to revisit the band as a whole. But yeah, it's been my enemy. It's my number two. All right. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned it kind of you paraphrase it almost a little bit there's a an enjoyable rock song from back in the day by a northern irish band called fighting with wire it's called everybody needs a nemesis which is again just a great song title maybe we should have done like yeah. songs about song titles anyway nonetheless that's another one for another day <laughs> uh here's my number one so my number one is uh i wanted uh, we've kind of touched on it like the eminem song does it a bit taylor swift's blank space does it a bit I wanted one that to close off that would take aim at uh, at the filthy media, Craig. Critics like us, and I think I've I think I've got the best one. I mean, like 
They can't all be Mr. Ryder by the Stereophonics, but instead they could be good songs like this Suckers, one. Suckers, liars, give me a shovel. Some writers I know are damn devils. From them I say don't believe the hype. Yo, Chuck, they must be on a pipe, right? Their pens and pads I snatch cause I've had it. I'm not an addict, fiend, if we're static. I see their tape recorder and I grab it. No, you can't have it back, silly rabbit. I'm going to my media assassin, Harry Allen. I gotta ask him. Yo, Harry, you're a writer. Are we that tight? Don't believe the hype. Now, here's what I want you all to do for me. Don't believe Inspired by the works of Noam Chomsky, because of course it is, it's Public Enemy with Don't Believe the Hype, which is taken from the imperious record, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. Public Enemy have also recently featured on Top 5 of mine, uh, and I was kind of panicking over that, but I looked it up and I think it was back in April, so I think enough time has elapsed that... Uh, yeah, don't panic. <laughs> no stress, man. <laughs> well, you know, like, I, 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 I want to mix it up, you know? Like, I, I, I want to treat the listener with the respect and not, not just be like, here's me phoning it in, but, like, this is a song I've adored forever. Um, Public Enemy are one of those acts where, like, again, it's an intimidating back catalogue and there's just so much stuff, and like, uh, a lot of it can be kind of you know, like self-cannibalizing and it can be a bit naff sometimes, but man, when they're on, they're on like nothing else. And this is Public Enemy taking aim at anyone who comes at them basically being like, oh, these guys shouldn't be fucking rapping about political issues and they shouldn't have opinions about things. Just stick to the boombox stuff, lads. But Chuck D's too good for that. And Flavor Flav, when he was in the mood, was as well. Uh, I love the vibe of this song. I love the kind of rhythm to it. I love how it doesn't need to be, it's very busy, but it doesn't need to be screaming at you. Like it's got a nice kind of calmness to it as well. I love the reference to that they're their media assassin Harry Allen who I think was their their PR guy their publicist who would just basically mm. like go after any of the fucking rags that would go after them and they would obviously do it themselves in their own music and Public Enemy have stood as continue to stand as I think a righteous force in the world of music most part from what we've seen apart from some infighting here and there and maybe some accusations of hypocrisy but who doesn't get those but uh, I think you know I think if you're going to write like a, an incredible tone poem in response to people just saying, you know, get back in your box, mate, it doesn't get much better than this. And even like, just like, even like, just don't believe the hype, it, the, the kind of the double usage of that and the kind of the knowing kind of nods and the witticisms, they're all over it. Uh, I think it's an essential piece of music. And I think it's an incredible riposte, an incredible fuck you to anyone who kind of just threw very lazy archetypes their way. Very good. Yeah, I love that song. Um, my number one this was nailed on from the get-go as soon as I realised I'd already picked Anti up. Um, <laughs> I won't say too much about this. Um, I think it kind of speaks for itself. I think it does a good job of summing it all up. And it's a good tune from way back when to take to heart, I think, and carry with you. There you go. Don't you mind fever granting in your veins. Don't mind fever granting in your veins. Yeah, just bear this in mind A true friend is hard to find Don't you mind people grinning in your face You know your mother will talk about you Your sisters and your brothers too Yes, don't care how you're trying to live They'll talk about you still Yes, but bad is in mind A true friend is hard to find Don't you mind 
People grinning. At Sun House, it's grinning in your face, and it's him saying, Haters be hating, fuck them. <laughs> and I love the freedom in like the self sufficiency. It's so, it's just him clapping off time. Um, he's a really interesting character because he was a Mississippi bluesman who was like, he, he was an influence on Robert Johnson. He was like, <laughs> like inventing rock and roll. But he is one of those um, blues artists who actually lived long enough to get some much kind of warranted acclaim and like he lived into his 80s and he was recording into the 60s and touring and he was like you know playing festivals around the same time as the British Invasion bands and it's just good that he kind of got his moment in the spotlight hugely influential um he would actually play a mean bottleneck guitar as well it wasn't all just kind of acapella stuff but yeah something about that song I remember I got it years back on Bought it on iTunes for like two quid. iTunes nostalgia. <laughs> Me being like, yeah. <laughs> wow. When we used to buy songs on iTunes. <laughs> Downloaded like the James so Blake album for the news but, um, set. It does. Yeah, it just does something. It kind of works. It's Jack White's favorite ever song, apparently. Um, and I might just quote him um, to kind of wrap up my little part. So he was talking about falling in love with the song. He said, by the time I was 18, somebody played me Sunhouse. That was it for me. This spoke to me in a thousand different ways, this particular song. I didn't know that you could do that, just singing and clapping. It meant everything about rock and roll, expression, creativity and art. One man against the world and one song. It didn't matter that he was clapping off time. It didn't matter that it was no instruments being played. All that mattered was the attitude of the song. Um, which I think, yeah, sums it up nicely, whatever you think about Jack White. But um, really powerful in a very strange way. And yeah, that's my number one. Well, that's what hatred is, Craig. It's powerful in a strange way. And not to be encouraged, though, I would say. Be good to one another. But then again, yes. in the arts world, hate can be a a lightning bolt of its own. Um, it's one of those ones where I'm like, did we, did, did we get this brief right? I don't know if we did. But I do think that we delivered 10 very interesting songs. And that's what yeah, it's all it was, about. It was really. our brief. We can just rewrite re- rewrite it. You know, it's no, it's no problem. Yeah, that's what we do. You know, we um, we lure you in and then give you an entirely different show. But I hope this show was good and I hope it sounds good. But I know that it will because it's being engineered by the wonderful, the beautiful, the handsome, the courageous, our best friend, Sonic Architect Adam. Go check out Before the Encore from this month with Siv if you have yet to. uh, And tell Adam all about it. Find him on social media. Tell him lovely things. He loves to be loved. We all do. It's all about love, not hate. But it was this week. Right, that's enough rambling from me. My name is Dave Hanready. This has been No Encore. There shall be no encore. And we're going to be back extremely soon. Take care. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.